You're listening to Your Recovered Life Series, True Stories from the Future, with your host, Courtney Webster. Hi, I'm Courtney Webster, and this is Your Recovered Life. Today, I'm truly honored to be joined by Noah Levine. Let me tell you a little bit about him, and then we can get started. Noah Levine is the founder of the Against the Stream Buddhist Meditation Society, with centers in Los Angeles and San Francisco and over 20 affiliated groups in North America and Europe. He teaches meditation groups, gives workshops, and leads retreats internationally. Noah has created a process of addiction recovery based on the teachings of the Buddha called Refuge Recovery. He is the author of Dharma Punks, Against the Stream, Heart of the Revolution, and Refuge Recovery. So I want to welcome you and thank you for being here. Thanks, Courtney. Happy to be here. Cool. So, um... I just want to say the first time I heard you speak, you were sharing some of your story and um, you you shared kind of the outline of the process that gets that you outline actually that you wrote the book about with Refuge Recovery. And I was just like, holy, wow. I was really, I was impressed. I was inspired. I was humbled. Um, and I just, the, the, you know, you sharing about your process in getting into recovery and then kind of being led or following, I just, I wanted to know more. I really wanted to know more. So I'm really grateful that you're going to share part of your story with us today. And um, part of the deal is one of the first questions I like to ask people is, have you found your calling? So I guess that's what I want to ask you first. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I found my calling. Um, it just, uh, it just sort of happened. Yeah. So, so here's the cool part. And I'm so, I feel so excited, really. Honestly, I feel like a kid in a candy store because <laughs> I read your bio, right? And I'm kind of in the beginner's mind, right? Like, cause I feel like we can look at people who have found their calling and have created whatever they've created for their life, right? And from the outside, it looks like, and if we're in the part where, I'm not really sure what mine is or am I doing the right thing or just in the questioning part, in the seeking part, to look and see what somebody's done, it can feel like, how did that happen? And what makes me feel like I'm in a candy store is I feel like I get to say, how did that happen and get an answer? Right. So you want to jump in and kind of lay it out and I'll jump in and ask questions along the way? Sure. Happy to. Okay. Um, well, how did it happen? It's <laughs> broad question. I, I think that I think that part of it for me was the perfect um setup of um suffering in my early life and my childhood. Mm-hmm. And uh you know, enough suffering but also enough nurturing and and wisdom that got me to the place very young. Um suffering from addiction as a teenager, probably even adolescence, I was already moving towards addiction and, um, and enough suffering to, uh, motivate me to get sober at 17 years old, you know, after years of drug addiction and alcoholism and, crime and being in and out of juvenile hall between the ages of 12 and 18. And, um, you know, and I, I got sober. I, you know, I started getting sent to, to recovery 
you know, intervention, counseling, and therapy, and 12-step meetings, and, you know, from about 13 years old on. Wow. And um, when I was 17, I was, you know, strung out on crack and, smoke, you know, shooting heroin and drinking alcoholically and, uh, you know, and was looking at my third felony. And, you know, part of that perfect setup for me was that my father was a Buddhist meditation practitioner and teacher, and my mother was a, an addict, an alcoholic. Mm. And, um, you know, they were divorced when I was very young, and I went back and forth, and, you know, I had rejected all things spiritual, and, you know, I had sought my punk rock rebellion uh, through, you know, anarchistic uh, oblivion. But something switched, you know, the the bottom came and a moment of clarity happened and I had the willingness to, to try something different. And so, you know, both things was that I, you know, admitted that I was an addict and that wasn't a big leap for me. I knew I was an addict for for quite a while, but that I actually wanted help. Mm-hmm. And that that maybe there was some help. But you know, a big turning point for me around getting clean was uh taking some responsibility. I had blamed everyone else. I was a victim. And uh you know, when we're victims, there's there's not much hope because it's there's no responsibility and there's no uh, there's nothing to be done because it's not my fault. Right. But when I started to take some responsibility, I got some hope and, and uh, oh, I can maybe I can do something about this. And so that came uh, both with uh, 12-step, you know, recovery and, and meeting some recovering people in the institution that I was incarcerated in and, uh, you know, through hospitals and institutions, 12-step meetings and, getting a little bit of like, okay, these guys are are staying clean and maybe I can and, you know, not sure about this message of higher powers and praying and not not yeah. not so sure about that shit, but mm-hmm. um but they're doing something and they're you know, they're doing better than I am. I'm over here on the other side of the bars. So that and then also this conversation with my father when he said, uh, you know, maybe try meditation and all and gave me a a simple Buddhist mindfulness meditation instruction of um, breath awareness. And that was really the turning point for me that uh, eventually led to me, I guess, first led to me seeking uh, my calling. You know, Mm -hmm. I got sober. um, I got out of jail. um, I started meditating. And I didn't really know what to do with my life. Um, My early professional life was, I had worked in restaurants and, you know, working in a pizza restaurant was like the, you know, cool punk rock job, you know, spinning pies. And (laughs) it was, you know, like you could have a mohawk and tattoos and work in the pizza place. It was all right. Who knew it was a punk thing to work in a pizza parlor? (laughs) Where I grew up, it was. Awesome. And um, so I wasn't, I, I didn't really know what to do with my life. But what eventually happened was, I realized, you know, through both my Buddhist practice and and 12-step teachings on being of service, that I had spent the first half of my life helping people, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to try to help. 
I wanted to be of service. You were you were clear on that. So you were how like how um, clean? Do you do you call yourself clean or sober? Or what what's the terminology you like to use? Yeah, I don't doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Okay. Um. So how how far along in recovery were you when you were like, well, what should I do? What should I be doing? And then coming up with that answer of being of service. Well, I think it was really a couple of years in. But what's interesting is that um, even in the first couple of years, where my mind was going for uh, for work was like I thought I'd become a paramedic. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be an emergency medical technician. I wanted, and and part in in that period, it was like, oh, cool! I can like the gore and guts and adrenaline yeah. of you know scraping people off of the sidewalk <laughs> or you know, in the emergency room, like I thought, you know, I was a young testosterone filled <laughs> kid, you know, yeah. and I thought, oh, this will be fun. I'll work in the medical field and, you know, emergency medicine. And what happened with and, that idea? And I, and I did that and I got my EMT and I worked in a, uh, you know, kind of drop in medical center. And I worked in an emergency room and I ended up working in a hospital for many years. And while I was uh, working, I had a bunch of different jobs. I had a nursing assistant job. I had an EKG job. I had a phlebotomy laboratory assistant job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I worked in the in the medical field. And then I did um, outpatient uh, or um, outreach. I started doing community medical health stuff. Um, but, but in the beginning, it was the kind of draw to adrenaline and mm-hmm. excitement and, you know, blood and guts or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then as I be- kept meditating and worked the steps and started to mellow, I, you know, started shifting for me from uh, the thrill of it to wanting to help people and enjoying helping people and having spent so much time hurting people of feeling like, okay, finally I'm giving back and I'm helping, you know, old people and I'm helping sick people and I'm uh, and I'm helping kids, you know, with HIV education and, uh, you know, harm reduction. You know, I, I started at some point working uh, with a needle exchange and, you know, working with kids on the streets, you know, mm-hmm. which is where I came from. Mm-hmm. So it just kind of organically went and I was going to school. I mean, I had dropped out of junior high school. Basically, I had no education when I got sober. But I went back and I got my GED and I started going to junior college. I started doing all of my kind of pre-med classes thinking maybe I'll become an RN or a PA, a physician's assistant mm-hmm. or a nurse, or maybe even a doctor, although um, I was looking for a little less school than, than the full medical school uh, route. Yeah, who, who isn't? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I was looking for a career in, you know, in the, in the medical field and in, in the helping profession. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like that was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, do something medically like that's that's the plan. Yeah, and, and it was a little bit of a split between medical and community health. You know, mm-hmm. so then I started thinking, oh, maybe I should become a social worker, or, um, you know, and then around you know through all of that, my meditation practice was you know so central, and my spiritual practice was so central. There was also this inkling that maybe I would go ordain as a monk. Mm. And I spent some time, I spent two years celibate, you know, just on my own sort of spiritual discipline and was studying with a lot of Buddhist monks and thought like, that's really what I really want is enlightenment. What I really want is awakening. And so, um, you know, that choice of like, do I even want to be in the world? Is my calling professional or is my calling monastic? Mm. And that, you know, through my 20s, that was a sort of an ongoing conversation for me. 
of, you know, should I go off and ordain or should I keep, you know, kind of working? And I'd spent a lot of time in my 20s going to Southeast Asia and India and, you know, traveling for months at a time and visiting monasteries and, you know, on these sort of spiritual pilgrimages. Mm -hmm. Were you, there's two questions. One, you said your um, meditation was was, um, really strong at that point. What did that practice look like at this point? My first couple of years of meditation practice were a little half-assed. Mm-hmm. And then at about two years in, which only makes me like 19 years old, mm-hmm. um, I went to my first meditation retreat. And, um, you know, and what inspired that was for those first couple of years, I still thought that I wasn't really serious about the 12 steps. I was sober. I was going to meetings, but I wasn't really working the steps. And I still had that, what I now see as a delusion that there was a material solution, mm-hmm. that if I got the right relationship, if I got enough money, if I got enough, you know, basically attention, prestige or whatever, that I'd be happy. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, pretty quickly saw that nothing outside of myself was, was at all satisfactory and that I had the relationship and I had the car and I had, I had all the stuff that I thought would make me happy and I was still miserable. I was still, you know, suffering a lot. And, um, you know, it was at that point that I said, okay, the only thing that has ever really worked for me is meditation. And and I started working the 12 steps very thoroughly, but the 12-step theistic underpinnings of, you know, kind of this is going to be a magical, you know, conversion through this higher power and grace. And, you know, it just never made sense to me Mm -hmm. that uh, some – um, you know, higher power God was going to restore me to sanity. But but meditation was restoring me to sanity. You know, there was this very practical um, tool that I was using that I was actually getting some benefits from. And, uh, and so I, I signed up for a meditation retreat. And from that point on, I became a daily meditator and started doing, you know, several meditation retreats. And these are intensive, silent, you know, you go into these retreats and there's no eye contact and there's, you know, no talking. Um, and, you know, you're just in silent, you know, sitting for an hour, 45 minutes and sitting and walking, you know, all day, every day for, for several days at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, my practice became very serious with a daily practice and regular retreat. Yeah. All right. And that was, that was just a couple, that was like two years in, you got really like serious about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think having that addict, uh, compulsive tendency Mm -hmm. is that I went from, uh, you know, zero to 90 and became, you know, obsessive about spiritual practice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll overdo anything. Right, and, right. You know, and I got like that about spiritual practice, too, where where I just got really all in about it. And, um, and you so, know, and so then the whole professional thing was sort of unfolding in community health and, and hospitals and at one point, I was on this trip in India, and I was just about finished with community college and needed to make some decisions about what's next. And Oh, and I was doing this practice. It's called a year-to-live practice, Okay. where I was taking 12 months of my life, and I was about 10 years sober, and, um, and I was taking a year and saying, if I had one year to live, if I had a terminal diagnosis, how would I spend that last year of my life? And how, what do I need to do so that I could die a year from now um, 
with finished business, right? All of the amends made, all of the gratitude expressed, so that there's nothing left unsaid. Wow. And, you know, so it's not no desires left unfulfilled, but nothing left unsaid. Mm-hmm. And um, so as part of that process, towards the end of it, I was with a friend in the Indian Ocean, and we're having, and we we're both doing this practice and kind of just this conversation about what's next. And um, I was at that point, I said, I, you know, I think I'm going to go back to school and become a psychotherapist. I don't think that the medical field was really it for me because I don't care as much about people's bodies. Um, what I really care about is um, meditation and, um, you know, and psychological, spiritual health. Right. Emotional intelligence more than, than physical. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and a little bit, you know, before that, around that time, I had also started teaching meditation. I had done the mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher training, and I had been going into the juvenile halls um, and teaching mindfulness. And so I had started to, um, you know, be of service in that way. And I thought, okay, well, this will be a good thing. To, to go and, and become a, you know, get trained in Western psychology because the Eastern philosophy is becoming so central. I should balance it with, you know, Western view, Western psychological view mm-hmm. in this culture. And then what happened? So I came back and I went back to school and I finished my BA and I went to grad school for psychology. And in that process, my teacher said, we want you to start teaching Buddhism. Mm-hmm. And you know, which I was already doing a little bit, but they said, you know, we want uh, my teacher Jack Cornfield invited me to come and be the director of the teen and family program at Spirit Rock Meditation Center mm-hmm. up in Marin County. That's his place. And I went and worked up there and um, started grad school. And then, you know, somewhere in that process, he said, I want to bring you into this teacher training process. Um, and I, and I started a teacher training, and somewhere in there, it also occurred to me, as I started teaching and started getting these invitations to teach, um, I saw how well the Buddhists were responding to me sharing my story, mm-hmm. which is a very 12-step thing, right? We share our experience, strength, and hope. Exactly. And, you know, that's, that's how I know how to, to teach. Uh-huh. <laughs> so rather than getting up there and saying the Buddha said this and that, I was getting up in there and saying, you know, hey, I was a drug addict <laughs> uh, criminal. And when I started practicing mindfulness, it taught me about this stuff that the Buddha is teaching. It taught me about suffering and the causes of suffering. And this is how it's been alleviating my suffering. Mm-hmm. So doing a much more kind of personal uh, way of teaching through being, um, you know, very transparent. Yeah. Cool. And and I got such a good response from that. That's also when it occurred to me. Also in school, um, I had to write all of these papers about my life. Mm-hmm. And I wrote a 25-page paper about uh, pilgrimage in India. And I wrote a 25-page paper about recovery from addiction. I wrote a 25-page paper about uh, you know all of these different areas of my life. And when my teachers read those, uh, one of my teachers, who was also a writing teacher and a writer, she said, you have a great book in you. Mm. You know, you should think about writing this stuff down. And so I did. And <laughs> you know, that, that became my first book, Dharma Punks. Yeah. What did you think about that? Like, okay, write a book. What, how, how did yeah. that flow for you? I just said, yeah, sure. Let me take a shot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm not a writer. I've never written anything uh, other than, the, you know, all of that school stuff. Right. 
but I liked it. I liked the creative outlet of it. And, um, you know, and I had a, the longer I meditated, the more vivid my memories were, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to where early childhood stuff that I didn't really remember. There's something about meditation that, that gives you access to some of the unconscious memories that are stored. Yeah. Well, in Dharma Punks, you really have the recollections that you share are extremely vivid. I mean, so I, I totally hear what you're saying. Well, well, I also had a journaling. I had a, a 10 step practice that, you know, was kind of closer to a journaling practice. I had a sponsor early on that said, uh, 10 step is a daily inventory. It is not a spot, you know, it's not an occasional. And he said, so every day you write about your day, you write about your life every single day. Mm-hmm. And so I had, you know, almost 10 years of journals where I was writing about my day. So also when I started writing um, the book, mm-hmm. I, had, I had all these journals to be able to go back on and reflect on. Well, that was handy. Yeah, it was handy. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. So note note to anyone who's thinking about writing a book at some point, start keeping yeah. a journal, right, and doing a 10-step. That's helpful, yeah. Okay, so you – I feel like we – there's so much and there's so much richness here, and I, and I want to hear how – like kind of like the thought process and like the, ooh, was it scary? Was it like being – it sounds like the things you're describing, it was like you just – I mean, this sounds so simplistic, but it was like – the next right indicated action kind of stuff? It all feels very organic to me, Courtney, because it was just uh, like, okay, I'm at Spirit Rock and then Tricycle, this big Buddhist magazine. It's like, oh, this is, this guy's kind of cool. Like who's this tattooed punk rock Buddhist that's running their, you know, teen and family program. And Mm -hmm. they said, can we interview you? And, and so they did this big spread in the magazine Um, with me about my kind of punk Buddhist, you know, intersection Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, punk Buddhist recovery, you know, kind of whole thing. And so when that came out, that that also said, oh, maybe there is a book here. You know, it was right before I had written the book. And so, um, you know, it just sort of happened organically. I talked to my father, I said, should I do a book? And he's like, yeah, my old editor is now an agent. Why don't you show her your stuff? And, um, you know, she was like, oh, yeah, totally no-brainer. Buddhism is big business right now. Uh-huh. Uh, you have such an interesting story. Your writing doesn't suck. Mm-hmm. You know, let's let's pitch this and let's try to sell this as a book. Cool. Um, and, and I was just very fortunate where um, there was like 10, you know, like everybody was interested. All of the publishers that we sent the proposal to were like, yeah, we want it. And then there was a bidding war. Like they, you know, this is also a time in publishing in the early 2000s. Um, you know, kind of around 2001, mm-hmm. where publishing was still big business. Mm-hmm. Not so much anymore. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, the publishing industry has taken such a huge hit uh, with ebooks and, you know, all of that stuff. But, but at that uh, time, they were... At that was... time, it was a big deal. So I got this great book deal. Uh-huh. And, you know, and Dharma Punks came out, and I was teaching, and I was in teacher training, and... Um, you know, I was getting invitations to, you know, do lectures and teaching and all of a sudden sort of Buddhist teacher was just happened to me. And I think that this is important for me. I don't know how much this is going to help uh, your listen, you know, the uh-huh. listeners uh-huh. who are looking to create their, mm-hmm. their, their career and find their calling. Um, because for me, all I knew is that my calling was to help people. And what happened organically was through my commitment to my own spiritual practice, 
that was recognized by the authorities in that realm. And then I was encouraged. And traditionally in Buddhism, you don't teach meditation unless your teacher asks you to. Mm. You know, nobody's uh, allowed to just go out and say, I'm a meditation teacher. It's a lineage of empowerment. And, you know, you have to be empowered to teach you know, cool. within the lineage. And that, you know, that just happened without me asking for it. It just happened. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so you, you write the book. Now you're a Buddhist teacher. And what happens next? Um, you know, I finished graduate school and I wasn't sure about getting licensed as a therapist or not. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, probably a good idea on one level, you know, if I want to be a psychotherapist and be able to be, you know, reimbursed by insurance and or, you know, work in a, in, you know, an institution that's going to be charging insurance. But it didn't look like that was really happening for me. It looked like really what I was doing was teaching meditation and giving workshops and leading retreats and, and counseling people. Um, but, you know, it wasn't going to be something I was charging insurance for. It was just a kind of donation-based or cash pay mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So I chose to not get licensed. Um, you know, started writing another book after Dharma Punks, you know, a year later, said, okay, I'll write, I have this sort of career as a teacher and author. You mm-hmm. know, Dharma Punks was a bestseller, and, um, you know, and, and the community around me, the response was so positive to it that uh, I had all these invitations to teach all over the place, and I was making, you know, enough livelihood just off of teaching and, yeah. and doing some counseling that, um that I chose not to get licensed as a therapist. Were you at this point feeling, because, you know, in the beginning you talked about, like, I was kind of like, what is my calling? What am I supposed to be doing? Like, at this point, how are you feeling about things? Were you still asking or were you like, okay, this is it. What was going on? Yeah, I know. It was just a a complete, oh, yeah, this is right. Mm -hmm. This is totally, this is perfectly right. And, And I think that for me, I've seen a lot of people become, empowered as as buddhist teachers or uh you know become spiritual teachers and that there's a lot of inner conflict that people have around it of like well i'm not as wise as my teachers or um you know what what is a spiritual teacher supposed to look like or whatever and i didn't have any of that because my father was a very famous spiritual teacher Mm -hmm. and i and i knew all of these spiritual teachers growing up and I knew that they were regular people mm-hmm. who, you know, have wisdom and have compassion, but that they're not all that special. <laughs> uh-huh. You, you <laughs> so had seen felt, the great and mighty Oz, right? Right. So I felt totally okay with like, oh, yeah, this is happening to me and I'm not perfect and I'm not enlightened and I'm not special. But I also see that I have a, a natural skill to write about the Buddhism and to teach Buddhism and to guide people in the process of awakening. And, you know, I just felt very confident in, in the process. And um, so I, I just felt like, oh, yeah, this, this seems totally perfect. Mm-hmm. So you just kept following it. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so, and so there's this whole part of like, if you read your bio and you know about you, you're like, well, then there's this whole against the stream and this meditation. And I remember something you when, when I first heard you um, share, you talked about how you would be in um, meetings and you were doing kind of like the ninja math in your head when they were saying certain things. You were like, oh, uh, okay, how would I apply this? 
in Buddhist terms, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm saying yeah. it probably not the same way you would, but can you share a little bit about how that happened? Because it feels like that's a really important part of what what you what you've created and what you've you know worked on and made happen here. Yeah, well, a lot of things. Again, it just feels like happened organically. Mm-hmm. Um, I was living in New York City for a couple of years just because I love New York City. I wanted to live out there and, you know, had a little bit of money and could move out there and, and set up a big community out there. I mean, I think that these are these are important, too, is that I walked away from the spiritual community that I had set up in San Francisco that was hundreds of people mm-hmm. and, you know, said, like, this is great, but, you know, all of this isn't as important to me as, you know, following my own uh, dreams and where I want to be. I'm not going to stay here for the community. Mm-hmm. And with, a, with also a confidence that the community could survive without me. You know, some, some question, you know, like, okay, here's hundreds of people following Buddhism, you know, in, in, with my direction, but will they continue to practice without me here? Because mm-hmm. often, actually, communities, when the leader leaves, start to fall apart. So I left and I empowered Vinnie Ferraro in that group, uh, who was an old friend and, you know, was becoming a teacher himself. And I said, oh, you know, take this group over. I'm going to New York. And I went to New York for a couple of years and the group out there grew huge, you know, hundreds of people in our, in our sangha, our community in New York. And then after a couple of years in New York, my um, Dharma punks got optioned for a film and the pub and the producer said, we want you to come to LA mm-hmm. and help us, you know, work on turning, turning the book into a movie. And I said, sure, I love LA. I'll come out there. And uh, I, I want this book to become a movie. I want, you know, because it'll reach so many more people and hopefully will inspire people to practice and to recover. And, yeah. and so I, you know, I came out to LA and, and started teaching meditation groups here. And at this point, you know, I've got books out there and, you know, I show up and a hundred people show up, you know, the first time I teach. And so there's just this sort of instant community that's happening. And um, after a while of being in LA, you know, people started saying, Hey, we should open a meditation center. Mm-hmm. And at that point I'm just like renting, you know, a couple nights a week from other meditation centers or yoga studios. Um, but the community was getting so big and they're saying, Hey, we want to have classes every day. Let's have a meditation center. And how many years ago was this? Like at what point? About seven, eight years ago. Yeah. And I said, okay, sure. You know, we need some money. Let's, let's give it a shot. Let's start it. You know, we should probably start a nonprofit so we can collect donations. And, um, we started collecting donations and yeah, I think probably got about fifty thousand dollars, and we signed a lease, you know, which cost us probably forty grand, you know, mm-hmm. which first last in deposit, right. you know, and just to just to move in, it probably cost us almost all of the money that we had, and probably couldn't pay rent for two months, <laughs> you know, it was a right. big risk. But I, I'm also a risk taker. I was like, okay, let's just go for it, and if it's supposed to be supported, it will be supported. You know, if people want this, then they'll support it. I, you know, I'll I'll show up and I'll teach. And if the community supports it, then we'll have a meditation center. And, uh, you know, that was seven years ago, and we're still open. And we and then we opened a second meditation center because, as you know, Los Angeles, if you're on the east side, you're not going to go to the west side to meditation class. <laughs> and if you're on the west side, you're not going to go to the east side to meditation class. Exactly. So, you know, we opened a place in Santa Monica, and we opened a place in Hollywood. And, you know, and the community has been supporting it now for, for seven years. And, uh, you know, and it's it's a big overhead. I think, you know, the first year 
with the original 50k we brought in about 100 grand and now we're bringing about $500,000 a year wow. um, to support the centers. And it's, it's almost all donations. I mean, a lot of that 500 is retreats that we put on. And, you know, it costs us, you know, we put on five or six retreats a year. And each retreat costs us $50,000 to put on, you know. And so that, that number, we actually, you know, we're a nonprofit. We break even every year. Right. And everything we do really just goes back into teaching meditation. Cool. And so then how did... How did oh okay now it's time to write another book with with refuge recovery how did that unfold Yes yeah, so I had written you know the first three books you know Dharma Punks which is my memoir and then Against the Stream and Heart of the Revolution which are Buddhist teaching books and it wasn't really so much time to write another book as much as part of my recovery and my Buddhist studies that I just became more and more dissatisfied with translating what I knew to be true for me from a Buddhist perspective into the Judeo-Christian theistic languaging of the 12 steps. Mm-hmm. And I, I just, like you said, I was sitting in meetings. I'm just feeling like, oh God, they're talking about something that I just don't believe in. Mm-hmm. I just don't believe in God. I just don't believe that that's how this works. And, um, you know, I feel like I know what actually, you know, it takes to have a transformation and that it's not magic. It's, it's a lot of hard work. (laughs) It's a, you know, it's a psychological transformation, um, that's not bestowed upon somebody, but that happens based on their own actions, you know, is my view. Um, and, you know, and there were some cool things happening. You know, when I started teaching Buddhism, I made a conscious decision to not, uh, be like the recovery Buddhist guy. Mm-hmm. Although Dharma Punks talks a lot about recovery, so a huge part of our community is recovery, but it, it was, um, but it's mixed. And I didn't want to exclude the non-addicts from my meditation groups. Right. I didn't want to say this is just for addicts. And some people started doing some cool books around Buddhism and the 12 steps and how to understand the theistic 12 steps through a non-theistic 12, you know, Buddhist view. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, this is very cool. That's offering some resources. But it still didn't really satisfy me. I still felt like, oh, we're still saying here's a Buddhist way to understand and fit into a Christian philosophy. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't believe in Christian philosophy. It doesn't resonate with me. And that's what the 12 steps are, you know. And you know, they're, they were so great at being open-minded Christians, mm-hmm. uh-huh. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. they were super open-minded for their time, but, you know, it still boils down to a Christian worldview that doesn't resonate with me. Uh-huh. And I was hoping that somebody would create a Buddhist perspective. And, you know, the more I studied and understood and taught Buddhism, the more I saw that actually Buddhism treats addiction really perfectly, mm. that all of Buddhism is really about the human suffering that's caused when we are addicted to pleasure, when we're addicted to uh, self, when we're, you know, that there's all of these kind of core teachings that point to how to break the addiction, whether mm-hmm. it's substances or, uh, uh, you know, or, you know, attitudes or, right. you know, really just being addicted to our own thinking, to our own mind. Mm-hmm. And um, so nobody seemed to be stepping forward and creating a Buddhist recovery program. And I said, okay, I know how to do this. I'll do it. And, 
think about six years ago, created refuge recovery meetings here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And I really took my time with it because I wanted to have the meetings. I wanted it to be uh, organic. I wanted it to come through experience of the community. Um, And of course, it, it made sense for it to be based on the core teachings of the Buddha, which are the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, we did this kind of long-term experiment while I was writing the material, and then got together with people who were involved in it and got feedback and had sort of a group effort in the creation of the program. It's great. Well, I I love how inclusive it is, and um, I'm a big fan of, of of the book and the the way you present it is just like inclusive is really the word that just is huge around it, and it it feels. And it, it almost feels like there's an invitation as well, because I'm like, I'm steeped in 12 step and I don't really, I don't really consider myself Christian. And I, I just kind of like didn't question any of it. And it just kind of works. You know what I mean? Like 12 steps worked. I didn't feel like I had to do any math around the spirituality part. Like God, for me, it's just like, oh my God, like I don't have, I never, I didn't really, I wasn't um, indoctrinated in any religion growing up. So that was kind of lucky. I didn't have right. anything to fight against. So my religion or my, you know, if there were a religion, it would be like, um, the 12 step program is my religion. Right. So, um, but what I loved when I read your book was just the, the invitation to like, well, what other things might I be addicted to that I could apply this to, you know, addicted in quotes, but like the feelings. And even as you talk about it, I'm like, oh yeah, there's, there's just, there's some, um, relief. That's really what I'm always looking for. Relief. Right. And I I really found that. And I just, I just, I'm so appreciative of you putting it out there. And I know there are a lot of people who felt the same way and feel the same way that you do about like, oh, this isn't really working for me, this, this part of it. So to offer it so generously and with such an invitation, it's, it's just an amazing thing. I'm, I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan and, and appreciate it. Thank you. I mean, I, I, I agree, and I hope that it feels that way. And I think one of the brilliant things about refuge recovery and about Buddhism in general is that because it's non-theistic, um, it's not telling you not to believe. And so if you believe in God, Buddhism still really fits. And if you don't believe in God, it really fits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where, you know, it's one of the few things, you know, it's usually like you're either a believer or you're not a believer. Mm-hmm. And Buddhism is saying, like, yeah, it doesn't really matter what you believe. What's your direct experience when you meditate, when you act in ethical ways, when you, you know, don't satisfy your cravings, when you respond with compassion? And, you know, if you have a belief system that supports doing those things, wonderful. And if you don't have much belief system, it doesn't matter what's your direct experience. Yeah, that's great. It really, honestly, as you speak, I kind of feel it right in my solar plexus. It's just, it's awesome. So I want to, I want to wrap up and I, I want to ask you, like, what would you, what would you offer to someone who was in kind of the seeking phase right now? Um, and kind of feeling like, I don't really know, like he knew he just kind of did his meditation thing and it just unfolded, but what should I, I, what do I do? You know, it's hard. It's, I, I don't, I don't feel like I have the answer. I will share with you something that my father shared with me. And I don't know that this fits with everyone, but my dad said to me at some point, he said, you'll get all of your best jobs in this lifetime volunteering. Mm-hmm. He said, because you want to find something to do for a living that you would do for free. <laughs> if it's possible, find something, 
you know, and so that doesn't mean like, oh, well, I, you know, I want to be a rock star. Or, you know, I like to paint, so I'm going to, you know, and, but may, maybe it is that. Maybe it is music or art or something like that. We all know how hard it is to make a living, um, you know, for artists or musicians most of the time, except for the 1% that, that make it big and make right. a living. Um, but doing something that you love doing, that you're passionate about. And so for me, it was just helping people. And whether that was in the hospitals or in counseling centers or in meditation halls, what I felt good about, what I did for free for many, many years right. before I started making any money was teaching meditation. And it became the thing that I actually make a living doing. Right. Yeah. Which, which is what I think everybody hopes for, right? That's kind of the dream, like, oh, do what you love and the rest will follow. And so, so I, but I think it helps to hear, like, that's what I did. It, that's yeah. actually what I did. So let me ask one more question, and that is if, you know, I think that in recovery we can we can have these opportunities present, which are like here, I, you know, which is like the universe opening the door. You put this work in and the, the door opens, and then you're like standing on the threshold, and it feels scary. Yeah. And so what would you offer? Because I, I'm, I'm going to guess that some of the things that you've stepped forward to do – I guess I should ask, have they been scary? And what did you do? Um, yes. And I think that, I think like this is specific to me. I don't know how many people, but here's what I think. Yeah. Be willing to fail. Mm. And, you know, don't let fear stop us. And be like, you know, I signed the lease and like I can't pay next month's rent. I'm totally willing to fail. And I'm not not doing things because of I'm afraid or I'm taking the secure route or, you know, the guaranteed paycheck. Um, you know, I'm going to still to this day, I go and I teach a retreat and I don't I'm not guaranteed a penny. I live on donations from people. And I might teach for free. And I'm totally willing to do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I know from 15 years of experience that people are going to give me some donations right. and that I'm going to be fine. But, um, you know, just that willingness to fail and to say, let's take a risk. And if it works out, great. And if it doesn't, I'm going to be okay no matter what. Awesome. That's brilliant. Thank you for sharing that. I needed to hear that today too. So that part of it was a selfishly motivated question, big, stepping into bigger things. But your answer just, um, I can take that away and it's a beautiful thing to share. So is there anything I, I, I didn't ask you that you'd want to say? No, I mean, I just want to, I mean, we talked about refuge recovery and, you know, I'm just wanting to encourage people to check out the book and to check out the meetings, check out the website um, you know, I mean, the other piece that has come out of this is the treatment center that I've opened, the Sober Living House. So people that are listening that are interested in the refuge recovery approach or treatment options can check out refugerecovery.org and, uh, you know, see what we're talking about. Awesome. And I will have links for all of the Against the Stream and your books and, and refuge recovery and all of that so people can just click on a, on a link and find a lot of information. So thank Wonderful. you, Noah. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and sharing your story. Thanks, Courtney. Happy to do it. Okay. Take care. You too. Bye. Bye. To get in touch with or learn more about what Noah's up to, check out these websites, refugerecovery.org, 
dharmapunks.com, and I'll spell it D-H-A-R-M-A-P-U-N-X.com, and againstthestream.org. That's againstthestream.org. Great content, awesome guy. Check him out. To get in touch with me, check out my website at yourrecoveredlife.com. And if you have a true story to share, I'd love to hear from you. Send a note to Courtney at yourrecoveredlife.com. And thanks for listening.